Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 23. We do want to look at verses 1 through uh, 12 this morning here. And uh, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me the grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that edifies your people and brings glory to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 23, 1 through 12, Jesus exposes the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, You will note on the overhead, uh, we are in Matthew, and the theme is uh, Christ the King. Uh, There's all kinds of evidences presenting uh, Christ as the the Messiah King. And uh, then we have the formal rejection of the King in chapters 21 through 23, which is where we find ourselves this morning. It's the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, what we call Passion Week, that culminates in the cross. And during this week, there was a series of uh, inner conflicts, not inner, uh, a series of uh, conflict interactions uh, between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel, which took place on Tuesday at the temple. And so uh, just in terms of a little bit of background as far as chronology, where we find ourselves, on Sunday we have the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. He inspected the uh, temple activities, what was going on there. Then on Monday, uh, he cursed the fig tree and he uh, cleared or cleansed the temple. Uh, Tuesday, uh, he explained the withered fig tree. And we have these temple controversies with the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders had repeatedly tried to trip up Jesus on this day. They tried to uh, get him to fall in terms of... uh, trying to trick him in terms of uh, his words and, and trip him up with his words. And they failed miserably in that endeavor. Well, then, uh, when Jesus asked them why David, in Psalm 110, verse 1, called the son of David his Lord, they could not answer him. Couldn't answer him a word. Jesus was not content to leave it there. He had more to say to these religious leaders. And it would be scathing. That's Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is the Lord's last public message, and it is a prolonged message of denunciation and judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees, who happen to be, by the way, the most respected leaders, religious leaders, in Israel. In abbreviated form, the parallel passages are seen in Mark 12, 38 through 40, and also Luke 20, 45 through 47. So again, Matthew 23 is the climax of the section that began in chapter 21, verse 23, which includes five hostile exchanges and three parables of judgment. Uh, An outline of uh, chapter 23, where we find ourselves this morning, uh, looks like this. In the first 12 verses, which we are studying this morning, uh, Jesus exposes the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verses 13 through 36, we have seven woes of judgment pronounced on the scribes and the Pharisees. And finally, the chapter ends with uh, an emphasis on the fate of Jerusalem. Well, that brings us to our study. Let's get started. Uh, Chapter Matthew 23 and verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. So Jesus at this point is addressing the crowds and his disciples in reference to the scribes and the Pharisees. And really this is, uh, amounts to a warning given about these esteemed religious leaders, who in reality were very dangerous leaders. 
And uh, what Jesus has to say also serves as a corrective in terms of what legitimate spiritual leadership should look like. False teachers are dangerous, and they are to be marked. Often God's people say, I don't want to judge. And because of this, they give false teachers a pass because they don't want to judge. And certainly we don't want to judge hypocritically, which is the context of judge not in Matthew 7.1. But on the other hand, we are to be discerning. And that involves making proper judgment calls. Sometimes people say, uh, thou shalt not judge means thou shalt not discern, when in fact the Bible says we need to be discerning. At the end of Romans, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, note those, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. These people are to be noted. They're very deceptive. They're very dangerous. Now, there are two areas in which a teacher can go wrong. There's orthodoxy and there's orthopraxy. Orthodoxy refers to right teaching. Orthopraxy, right conduct or right living. Now, some teachers seem to have the right teaching, but they are wrong in how they live. They are hypocrites. They preach one thing and practice another. Pharisees are in that category. And, of course, they were wrong in both categories on some level, but uh, there was some things that they said that were correct. There are others who are wrong in their teaching but seem to live upright lives. And then there are those who are wrong in both teaching and living. Sound teachers are consistently right in their teaching and they also live lives of integrity. They practice what they preach. Not perfectly because none of us are perfect until we get to glory. But there does need to be consistency. And there is in sound Bible teachers. Well, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples... Verse 2, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. The scribes and the Pharisees claim to be the voice of authority on the revelation of God as revealed in the law through Moses. Thus, they claim to really be the defenders of the faith. Very literally, it says here, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in Moses' seat. You see... They claimed this position for themselves, but it was really not a God-ordained position. Watch out for self-made men who put themselves into position. They are invariably trouble. Well, the history of the scribes goes back to the Old Testament days. After the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, there was a need for them to be taught the word of God. Into this vacuum stepped Ezra commonly recognized as an early scribe, among the earliest of the scribes, along with his colleagues. Well, from this developed the order of the scribes. Uh, with the passing of time, their various interpretations were chronicled in what became known as the Talmud, which was really a mixture of truth and error. John MacArthur says, An ancient Jewish saying held that God gave the law to angels 
angels gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to Joshua. Joshua gave it to the elders. And the elders gave it to the prophets. And the prophets gave it to the men of the synagogue, who were later called scribes. Over the course of the years, those synagogue scribes became responsible not only for copying and preserving, but also for the teaching and interpreting of God's law. Thus, the scribes became recognized as the authoritative teachers. That's who they were. In fact, a, a form of the word uh, rabbi is really the idea of doctor. Th these were the doctors, the learned men of theology. Well, by the time of the New Testament, the priests no longer acted as teachers because that function had now been completely taken over by the scribes. They, in effect, were the professional Bible scholars and therefore were recognized as the authoritative teachers. The Pharisees uh, were the conservatives. Uh, there was only about 6,000 of them in the days of Christ, but in spite of their small number, they were the most influential group of spiritual leaders in the land. The word Pharisee literally means separated one. Uh, they took the law seriously and sought to live accordingly, at least in terms of appearance. Uh, there was a, a distinction between the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet there was overlap uh, with many of the scribes being Pharisees. Now, these scribes and Pharisees, as experts in and guardians of the law, saw themselves as the successors to Moses. Sitting in Moses' seat is a way of saying they saw themselves as the successors of Moses' authority. And that's a very heady position to assume. Archaeological finds have found that in the early synagogues, there was a literal chair that is thought to have been called the seat of Moses, from which these teachers of the law sat. And from that position, they spoke the law of God with authority, claiming the same authority that Moses had. They were speaking from the seat of Moses. The word seat is from the Greek cathedra, from which we get our word cathedral which literally means a place or seat of authority. The Roman Catholic Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, supposedly speaks with the authority of God. Ex cathedra is from the Latin and literally means from the chair. The Jews, the Jews saw Moses as the supreme lawgiver, the one who, was, who supremely spoke for God, and therefore to sit in Moses' seat was tantamount to being God's authoritative spokesman. They saw themselves as the legal successors to Moses, possessing all his authority. Now, this was the position of the scribes and the Pharisees, which they had assumed. The difference being that Moses' position was God-ordained, while theirs was not. They were kind of like Moses' wannabes, who in fact were usurpers. They were self made in their position of seating themselves in the seat of Moses, who claimed to speak with authority for God, just as Moses did. Verse 3, therefore, whatever they tell you to do, uh, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. And here's the problem. For they say and do not do. 
Looking at Jesus' ministry in total, we believe the sense of what Jesus was saying here is that they are to do whatever the scribes and the Pharisees said to do insofar as it properly lined up with Moses, insofar as it accurately represented the teachings of Moses. However, we know that Jesus at great length rebuked their extra-biblical traditions, as seen in Matthew 15 and Matthew 16. And here Jesus zeroes in on their hypocritical legalism, where they said to do, but they themselves did not do it. That's always a problem. Do as I say, but not as I do. Now, they didn't say that last part, but that's really what Jesus is saying. Uh, do as they say, in, in that they are giving forth Moses' teaching, but don't do as they do. Yes, obey the law of Moses when taught properly, but don't follow the legalism that they themselves don't even keep. The scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of preaching one thing and practicing another. That is the essence of hypocrisy. No wonder in Christ's sevenfold woe denunciation, the constant refrain is, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven times we have this later in the chapter. I take it from the emphasis that Jesus is making that being a hypocrite is most offensive to God. By the way, when the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, a liar is a hypocrite who claims to belong to God but is playing a game. You know, this week, uh, there's been a big story in the news about uh, the implosion of cryptocurrency, which is a digital currency. I don't know much about it, but as I was listening to some of these uh, people talk about it, you know, on the news, uh, I found it fascinating, uh, the discussion about the young founder who got people to buy, pun intended, through coming off what they termed altruism which is the idea of coming off as, as having selfless concern about community issues and the well-being of the community. And you can read here, green, green, green. You know, it just mentioned he's green all over the place, and it's like, okay, we'll throw money at this. The discussion was that this altruism was cloaked in wokeism, which was really totally bogus, but it sucked people in. And what they were saying is the guy was a total hypocrite, but people bought it. And as bad as phony altruism is in the secular world, I think there's nothing more offensive to God than what might be called religious altruism that is totally hypocritical. This really defined the scribes and the Pharisees generally as a group, with, with a few notable exceptions. In short, the scribes and the Pharisees lacked integrity. They were hypocrites who demanded of others what they could not and would not do themselves. It was all about external show and not a heart relationship with God. If one simply has an outward legalistic form of religion that doesn't really change their life, they are a religious hypocrite in the mold of the Pharisees. No wonder Jesus said such things as this in 
Matthew 5, 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Which was a really profound statement because you understand these were the most esteemed religious leaders in the whole land of Israel. The Bible warns that religious hypocrisy is what will define much of organized Christendom in the last, in the last days. It's kind of amazing. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this. You need to get this. But know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, heady, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. My goodness. This is how they're living? And yet, yet in spite of all of that, having a form of godliness. They're still going through the motions. But denying its life-changing power from such people turn away. So the last days are perilous times because of full-blown apostasy, because of huge game players who live a total double life and yet have an outward form of godliness. But in practical reality, deny its life-changing power. The old saying, your walk walks and your talk talks, but your walk don't walk like your talk talks. That defined the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. They were all talk and no walk. And then Jesus gets specific. Verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They were religious legalists. And religious legalists are great at commanding others to do all kinds of legalistic requirements, but consistently are very easy on themselves. They have two standards, one for others and one for me, one for themselves. And legalism is harsh. It doesn't know about the mercy rule. And frankly, this spirit can easily creep into the fellowship. And it's a killer. There are two great errors. One can either be too harsh or one can be too soft. Biblical obedience is not legalism. That is holy living according to God's word, which we are called to do. We are called to be a holy family. And as God's holy family, we are accountable to one another. Legalism is man-made rules that supposedly make a person more holy. But in truth, it doesn't. They're just man-made legalistic rules that are stifling. The scribes and the Pharisees piled up extra-biblical rules, law upon law, on the shoulders of the people. For example, there were 312 pages in the Babylonian Talmud devoted to extra-biblical rules for the Sabbath. They had stipulations about blowing out a candle on the Sabbath. Couldn't do it. A person could not drag his chair any distance. Uh, I should say you couldn't do it without certain regulations. Uh, they had stipulations about a person not dragging his chair any distance lest he be guilty of plowing on the Sabbath. 
A woman was told she could not look into a mirror because if she saw a gray hair, she would be tempted to pull it out and thereby fall into sin. Are you feeling the weight yet? 312 pages. It was considered work to tie and undo a knot on the Sabbath. One could not sow two stitches, sow two seeds, pluck a blade of grass, or pick even one piece of fruit on the Sabbath. One could not so much as clap their hands on the Sabbath. Indeed, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear on men's shoulders. It was so crazy that Alfred Edersheim, a converted a, converted, a Jew who converted to Christianity, said matters are seriously discussed as of vital religious importance, which one would scarcely imagine a sane intellect would seriously entertain. That's how crazy Jewish legalism had become. It was, it was crazy. Legalism always claims to be well-intended, but it puts rules, man-made rules, above relationships. The goal of the scribes and the Pharisees was supposedly to build a fence around the law so that people would not even come close to breaking it. By the way, how foolish, as if their man-made laws could be more effective than God's actual law or that it needed assistance. In contrast to the spirit of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. He told the Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In contrast to the uncaring attitude of the scribes and Pharisees who burden people down with unbearable legalistic rules and regulations is the rest that is found in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The bottom line is that Pharisaic legalism doesn't really care about people. It's more concerned about legalistic rule-keeping than the welfare and the good of people. God cares about people. Not just about rules, certainly not legalistic man-made rules. Not only were they religious hypocrites and unsympathetic legalists, but they also put on an outward show of piety to make themselves look pious. Verse 5, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They were not about humbly trying to please God, but rather about arrogantly putting on a show to try and impress people. Phylacteries were little leather boxes that had verses of Scripture in them. And they wore them either on their left arm or they attached them to the front of their head. And, uh, you know, they still do this at the time of their bar mitzvah. Young men are, are given phylacteries. And so you can see it right here uh, on the arm, on the forehead. That's what he says. They're doing this all for show. Uh, they make their phylacteries broad. Big old, look at that guy's phylactery. Wow, that's impressive. It's bigger than his head. No, uh, they were all about this. 
Now, they got this idea from various Old Testament scriptures. One example would be here in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They really picked up on that last part. Bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets uh, between your eyes. Now, originally, you know, this was something that developed in Jewish history. They didn't start there. Originally, the Jews understood this binding on the hand and on the forehead not to be taken literally, but symbolically. They understood that the law was to be in their heart so intently as to be the controlling factor of their lives. It was to control them not only in what they did, represented by the hand, but also by what they thought, represented by the forehead. So both their thoughts and their actions were to be directed by God's word. But somewhere along the line, they had externalized what God had intended for them to apply in a spiritual sense. For some reason, people tend to do this. And the church has done this with baptism, for example. It's a beautiful symbolic meaning, has beautiful symbolic meaning, but many have externalized it, making the outward ritual the essence, when in reality, it merely portrays spiritual reality. We have the same thing in communion. The cup and the bread merely portray the body and blood of Christ as we remember what Christ has done for us. But it's not the real thing. It's simply a symbol. There are many such things that even people under the broad umbrella of Christendom do today. Uh, this is an important verse <clears throat> in John six sixty three. Christ says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Now, someone once asked, someone once asked the question, should we take the Bible literally or spiritually? And the answer came back, we should take the literal parts literally, and we should take the spiritual parts spiritually. Yeah, that's the right answer. Uh, It's what we call rightly dividing the Word of God. We often say when plain sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense. But when it doesn't make sense, we need to consider that perhaps it should be taken metaphorically. When Christ says, I am the door, we don't think he's some kind of like a wooden door. We understand he's he's the entryway. We get this. We constantly do this in everyday language, by the way, and immediately understand the sense of what is being said. If I say the plants in our house are begging to be watered, you immediately understand they are not literally begging to be watered, but rather they are in desperate need of being watered, right? And that happens when the wife leaves for a week. (laughs) They start begging. When we... uh, say we interpret the Bible literally, it's better really to say we interpret it normally, which allows for metaphorical language and figures of speech, just as we commonly use in our normal communication. The Jews should have known this from the Old Testament scriptures, which made it obvious 
that this language of binding God's word on the physical body was really a symbolic way of saying it should be held close in your heart. Uh, Note a few examples of this from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Again, 621. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. 7.3. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. There's some symbolism being emphasized in terms of how you are to hold this close. But all the way through here, in relationship to the heart, that's the real issue. These legalistic Jews had lost sight of the spirit of what was being said and turned it into merely outward legalistic religion. And they did it in a very self-serving way, intended to promote self-righteousness. They made their phylacteries extra large to draw attention to their piety, and they enlarged the borders of their garments for the same reason. Now, the borders of their garments are thought here to refer to the blue-threaded tassels that God commanded for the Jews to wear on the corners of their garments as seen in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. Now, these tassels were to remind them that they were a holy people set apart to do the commandments of the Lord. Uh, got a picture here. <clears throat> you see them here, these tassels? Um, I'm not sure if this is, that might not be tassels. That might be the, I don't know. <laughs> but this guy's certainly illustrating of it. <clears throat> now, in Jesus' day, most all the Jews had these tassels that they wore on the edge of their garments, including Jesus. Uh, one of these tassels was undoubtedly the hem of Jesus' garment that the woman touched in Matthew 9.20. But again, these religious legalists missed the point. These tassels were not for show, but rather were to serve as a reminder to the wearer of their holy calling. Instead, the scribes and the Pharisees enlarged their borders in such a way as to draw attention to themselves and to make them look more spiritual. It was all about self. Charles Ryrie says, Christ criticizes not the custom itself, but the wrong spirit that corrupted it. Verse 6, he continues, They love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. These religious people were totally self-centered and all about self-serving. They thought only of self. In a word, they were selfish. Now, when people use spiritual positions for self-serving reasons of self-promotion, power, and prestige, you can be certain they are completely way off track. Uh, They were not there to serve, but rather to be served. And again, for them, it was all about self. They, in effect, were religious narcissists. That is, they had an inflated view of self-importance and made it all about self. They wanted to be the center of attention. And they were characterized by a total lack of true humility. They considered themselves to be the VIPs. And they wanted everyone else around them to recognize them as such. Nothing but the best for them. The best places, the best seats. It was all about their own self-interest, their own self-importance. He continues, verse 7, Greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Being self-centered, they loved these special greetings and extended 
that were extended to them in the marketplaces. They relished people fawning all over them, saying, Rabbi, Rabbi. The word rabbi had the meaning of my teacher or my master and came to have the nuance of my great one, my great teacher. Such a greeting really reflected special homage being paid to the person. It stroked their ego and they loved it. Thus, the rabbis were viewed as as wise and superior as spiritual guides. To recognize someone as rabbi was really almost to reverence them. As their disciple, one would obey them without question. One would never walk in front or beside them, but always behind them. The title rabbi definitely exuded an exalted status of special greatness. Really an exalted reverence that should be given only to God. Verse 8, but you, talking now to the disciples, you do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ. And you're all brethren. The issue here is the spirit of things. Jesus is not saying that there is no place for the role of teacher among God's people because we know the New Testament plainly teaches that God has given teachers to the church. The problem here was that the rabbis had an exalted view of self that really put them in a position of superiority that belongs to Christ alone as the supreme exalted teacher who is above all. As God's people, we're all equally sheep. We're all equally learning. There is no one supremely above all the others. We're all brothers. We're all brothers and sisters. There's to be no air of inherent superiority. According to the Talmud, it was more punishable to act against the words of the scribes than to act against the words of Scripture. That's putting the scribe up way too high. That really puts him in a higher position than God. Jesus said in John 13, You call me teacher and Lord. Lord means master. And you say, well, for so I am. Jesus as Lord alone is the master teacher. He's in a class all his own. We all sit at his feet. Now, yes, he uses gifted teachers, but we are to be humble and not have an overly exalted view of any other teacher because we're all brethren. Brethren signifies equality. This was one of the major reforms, by the way, that came out of the Reformation. The emphasis on the priesthood of all believers instead of just a clergy class being priests. Yes, there are differing God-ordained roles, and we are gifted differently. And certainly are different levels of maturity. And yet, as Paul says, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 There's no place for a more important than you attitude in the body. We are all brethren. We are all spiritual equals. There are no spiritual superiors. Verse 9, do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father. He who is in heaven. Again, the nuance of what Jesus was saying is that as mere humans, no one should assume the position that belongs to God the Father alone. 
Don't play God. As leaders, don't play God. We constantly need to recognize the truth that there is a God and that we are not him. Jesus is speaking in the sense of spiritual father who has the superior position over the family of God. This is the position of Father God alone. Yes, we have human fathers, and it is appropriate to recognize them as such. It's okay to have Father's Day. Yes, I think it's okay. But you know what I've often said about Mother's Day? You know, we, we, we recognize mothers on Mother's Day, but we don't worship mothers. Thank the Lord. Sometimes the whole service is around mother. Every time, a whole service is around father. Okay, we, we recognize you, but we're here to worship God. Paul spoke of himself as a spiritual father in a small f sense to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 15. He spoke of Timothy as his son in the Lord. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John addressed fathers. So there is a proper place to think in terms of people as a father. But in the spiritual sense of superior over the family of God, that belongs to God alone. Ed Glasscock says, Terms have both a generic meaning and a specialized meaning in particular contexts, such as apostle, deacon, elder, and here, teacher and father. For a clergy person to assume the title spiritual father over God's people in the sense of being a spiritual superior is unbiblical. I mean, it's flat contrary to what Christ said. For the Pope to have the title Holy Father is really blasphemous. In the scriptures, Holy Father is a title used only for God. God the Father. And that only once is found in John 17, 11. Self-exalting titles, reverend, most reverend, holy reverend, whatever, good grief. Uh, Self-exalting titles that make one out to be a spiritual superior really is blasphemous. Superior exaltation belongs to God alone. Verse 10, and do not be called teachers. Christ goes on and on and on about this. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. The word teacher here in verse 10 is a different Greek word than that which is found in verse 8. The word teacher here in verse 10 more literally means leader or guide. Now again, God has given leaders to the church. But they must always realize that they are merely under leaders, or what we call under shepherds. One alone. Namely, the Christ is the supreme guide over all. He alone is the chief shepherd. Nobody else should carry on like they are, lording it over other people. Don't play Lord. The issue throughout here is the issue of supremacy. That belongs to God alone. Spiritual leaders are to have a humble, lowly view of themselves, not an exalted, superior view. Warren Wearsby knocks it out of the park when he says, God has placed spiritual leaders in the church, but they must not replace God in our lives. The issue in question here is not merely a matter of titles, but the spirit of self-seeking glory that is behind it. I never take for myself the title reverend. 
You know why? I know myself very well. And I know there is nothing to reverence about me. Absolutely nothing. Why would you call me reverend? It's ridiculous. The word reverend is found only once in the Bible. It's found in the King James translation of Psalm 111, verse 9. And there it's applied only to God. However, there is a place for the use of proper titles in a functional sense. There is a place for proper respect, but not reverence. There is a line there. As Paul says in Romans 13, 7, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, Paul exhorts the brethren to recognize those who are over them in the Lord and to esteem them very highly in love. That's proper. So yes, proper recognition and respect, but not reverence. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. This is not an absolute prohibiting of officials, nor the use of appropriate titles. For Paul calls himself father of the Corinthians, and Timothy his son, and repeatedly calls himself an apostle, for example, too. But a spirit of humility should govern believers, not the self-seeking ambition of the Pharisees, which usurp for itself authority that belongs to God. Well, in terms of personal application... Uh, I am often called pastor, and in the right spirit of things, I'm okay with that because that is my functional position, and all of us elders are in a shepherding role, but that is my functional position, but it doesn't make me uh, spiritually superior in any way. It's simply reflective of the role that God has placed me in, in a stewardship role. In Ephesians 4, Paul is addressing truths that relate to the universal church, which is the basic theme of the entire epistle. And in that context, he says that God has given to the church certain gifted men that are referred to as pastor-teachers. Now, in context, the pastor-teacher emphasis relates uniquely to gifted people that Christ has given to the church. It's not merely talking about an office in this context. Rather, it's talking about specific gifted people given to the church to function in a specialized role. Now, Harold Honer, you know, the Greek scholar, uh, he uh, has a large commentary on Ephesians. And he makes a major point here in saying that the term office is never used in the New Testament in connection with the gifts, saying... Those who were selected in the offices were either appointed or elected by people on the basis of qualifications. Whereas the gifts are sovereignly bestowed by God. Of special note in Ephesians 4.11 is that gifted persons, pastor, teachers, under considerations here at this point, in view is not the office of elder or bishop. You see, the office of elder is never referenced in terms of being a gift. One is appointed to the office of elder on the basis of biblical qualifications and not merely giftedness. All elders will be gifted and have the ability to teach and all share in the shepherding responsibility. But not all will be equally gifted as pastor teachers in the sense of Ephesians 4.11. 
which refers to a specific gifted person or persons that are uniquely gifted and given by Christ to the church with a special word-based ministry. Paul also mentions those among the elders who are worthy of double honor, who are especially given over to laboring in the word and in doctrine. I would see the specialized calling of the pastor-teacher in Ephesians 4.11 as closely related to the seven messengers, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation as seen in Revelation 1-3. through All this to say that there are specific offices, callings, and roles as laid out in the New Testament scriptures. And it is not inappropriate to properly designate such people in a functional way. And yet, I wouldn't go too far with this. I have the functional title pastor, as in pastor-teacher, but I don't insist on being called anything special. As long as you call me for dinner, we'll be fine. You know, I'm just a brother in a stewardship role. And by the way, if you come to me and you want to make a major issue, that's fine. You can have the issue and you can take it with you. I don't care. Really, it doesn't matter to me. I often say, I'm just the delivery boy serving as a God-ordained messenger to the church. These messengers, by the way, are said three times in Revelation 1 and 2 to be in the special place of being held in Christ's right hand. But in and of themselves, they are nothing. The entire surrounding focal point of emphasis is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which is where the focal point of emphasis is always to be. As I often say, it's all about Jesus. In contrast, the scribes and the Pharisees made it all about them. Note what we have seen and studied here this morning in terms of an overview. The scribes and the Pharisees were characterized in this way. They were self-made. They, they put themselves in Moses' seat. Put themselves, we are now the authority. Y'all listen to us. Instead of just the word of God, they made themselves this. They were hypocrites. Do as I say, not as I do. Hypocrites. They were legalistic and unmerciful. Just rule upon, rule upon, rule upon, rule upon, rule. Let us run your life. Let me throw another rule at you. Piously self-promoting. I mean, it's all about them. Uh, look at my phylacteries. Aren't they nice and large? Wow, look how spiritual I am. I mean, I've got the word of God right in front of me. They were very selfish, the best seats, self-exalting, all these titles, all these uh, rabbi, rabbi, teacher, father, whatever. It's all about them. And then Jesus makes this application. Verse 11, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted to be counted as the greatest in a self-promoting sort of way. But Jesus turns that on its head and says that the greatest among his disciples be the one that assumes the role of the servant. I think heaven will be a great eye opener and a great mouth shutter. And those people that we're way behind the scenes serving. They're going to be moved to the front of the line. Servant. He was greatest among you. Shall be your servant. That was radically opposite of what these religious leaders were all about. Bible knowledge, commentary, leadership positions, positions should never be a goal in and of themselves. But should always be viewed as opportunities to serve others. 
By the way, we don't always have to make it known how we are serving in this way or that way. Just humbly go about it, not drawing attention to ourselves. That's really in keeping with the spirit of Christ-like humility. And by the way, there are always more opportunities for humble service. People say, well, I just don't have anything. There's no role for me to serve here. Really? Wow. What you're saying is, I need a position. Uh, No. There's always all kinds of opportunities to serve the body. By the way, if one has to be in a position in which to serve, they probably are out of sync with true humble service and shouldn't be there to start with. True servants don't vie for position or status. They just serve. This demonstrates true greatness before God. True greatness stoops to serve and doesn't draw attention to itself in the process. And then to drive the point home, Jesus says, verse 12, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. Pride goes before destruction. Want to put yourself up? You're climbing and trying to be up here at the top where everybody's looking up at me? Watch out. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're coming down. Those that exalt themselves are on the way down. It's just a matter of when and how. Religious leaders like the Pharisees exalted themselves, but ultimately, all who do so will be humbled in the worst sort of way. In contrast, those who humble themselves will in the end be exalted. Peter wrote to the suffering saints, and here's what he said to those suffering saints. He said something to them. <laughs> First Peter 5. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. I mean, that's in keeping with uh, humility, by the way. Instead of Lord, you know, everybody be submissive to me. You know, I'm the Lord here. I'm in charge. Uh, call me Father. No, no, no. Uh, all, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Have a submissive attitude. What can I do to serve you? I'm here for you. I'm not here for me. I'm not here to throw my weight around. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself down to where you should, and and let God do the exalting. God's the one who exalts. It's not about exalting self, but rather about humbling ourselves down before God. And as we do so, we can be sure that in the end, God will exalt us. So here's the contrast. On the one side, we have the scribes and the Pharisees. Pride, huge pride. Self-oriented, all about self. On the other side, we have Christ's disciples and his teaching. Humility. Humility is what is to characterize us. God-oriented, other-serving. John the Baptist said it well, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is a motto of kingdom greatness. It's not about me and my agenda. It's about God. We often talk about the great Apostle Paul. You know, he never spoke of himself in those terms. He didn't say, this is a letter from me, the great Apostle Paul. We don't find that. In fact, the more he matured, it seems, the less he thought of himself in terms of putting himself up. Uh, Note this. Uh, Just chronicle this with me. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Yes, I am one, but but I consider myself the least of all of them. Where do we put Paul in our minds? The least of the apostles? You know, he's just barely in? (laughs) No. 
but he saw himself. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then you go on a little further in Ephesians 3, 8, to me who am the last and the least of all the saints. Wow, not only does he make himself last of the apostles, now he's got himself the last of all, all the, the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the worst of all sinners. Last of the apostles, least of all the saints, the worst of sinners. You know what he had? He had a self-esteem problem. You know what? I think the man had grown in humility. I would say that God thoroughly worked humility in the life of Paul And this is indicative of true greatness before God. They say that if you see a turtle on the top of a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. How true. You know, we are in an exalted position in Christ, but we didn't get there by ourselves. We are not self-made people. We are grace-made people. In Christ, God has exalted us. Paul asked the Corinthians, and what do you have that you do not receive? The answer, of course, is nothing. And he said, if you received it, why are you boasting? We have much to be thankful for. I mean, we are joint heirs with Christ. God has given us everything. And in the kingdom, it will be fully on display. We have much to be thankful for because God has given us much. By grace. We have no room to boast because it's all a gift from God. Humility makes much out of God, not self. Jim Elliott, the missionary, rightly said, missionaries are very human folks, simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. That's who we are. J. Lanier Burns wrote, At the most basic level, the Bible defines humility as God-centeredness. And pride as self-centeredness. This is the great issue in life. What defines us? Is it self-centeredness or is it God-centeredness? In the end, this tells the story on everyone. God help us to be God-centered and other-serving. It's not about us. It's all about Him. Let's stand and have our closing song.